Chapter Twenty Three of the Struggles of Brown, Jones, and Robinson by Anthony Trollope. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Farewell. For the four appointed days, the sale was continued, and it was wondrous to see with what animation the things went off. It seemed as though ladies were desirous of having a souvenir from Magenta House and that goods could be sold at a higher price under the name of a sacrifice than they would fetch in the ordinary way of trade if only we could have done as well robinson said to his partner jones wishing that if possible there might be good humour between them in these last days we did do quite as well and better said jones only the money was thrown away in them horrid advertisements after that george robinson made no further effort to maintain friendly relations with mr jones george said mr brown i hope they'll allow me something they ought oughtn't they there wouldn't have been nothing only for my four thousand pounds robinson did not take the trouble to explain to him that had he kept his four thousand pounds out of the way the creditors would not now have any lost money to lament. Robinson was careful to raise no hopes by his answer, but nevertheless he resolved that when the sale was over he would do his best. On the fifth day, when the shop had been well-nigh cleared of all the goods, the premises themselves were sold. Brown, Jones, and Robinson had taken them on a term of years, and the lease with all the improvements was put up to auction when we say that the price which the property fetched exceeded the whole sum spent for external and internal decorations including the magenta paint and the plate glass we feel that the highest possible testimony is given to the taste and talent displayed by the firm it was immediately after this that application was made to the creditors on behalf of mr brown he brought four thousand pounds into the business, said Robinson, and now he hasn't a penny of his own. And we have none of us got a penny, whined out Mr. Jones, who was standing by. Mr. Jones and I are young and can earn our bread, said Robinson, but that old man must go into the workhouse if you do not feel it possible to do something for him. And so must my poor babbies, said Jones as to work i ain't fit for it but he was soon interrupted and made to understand that he might think himself lucky if he were not made to disgorge that which he already possessed as to mr brown the creditors with much generosity agreed that an annuity of twenty shillings a week should be purchased for him out of the proceeds of the sale i ain't long for this world george he said when he was told, and they ought to get it cheap. Put him up to that, George, do now. Twenty shillings a week was not much for all his wants, but nevertheless he might be more comfortable with that than he had been for many a year, if only his daughter would be kind to him. Alas, alas, was it within the nature of things that his daughter should be kind? It was on this occasion when the charitable intention of the creditors was communicated to Mr. Brown by Robinson 
that that conversation took place to which allusion has been made in the opening chapter of these memoirs. Of course it was necessary that each member of the firm should provide in some way for his future necessities. Mr. Jones had signified his intention of opening a small hairdresser's shop in Gray's Inn Lane. I was brought up to it once, he said, and it don't require much ready money. Both Mr. Brown and Robinson knew that he was in possession of money, but it was not now worth their while to say more about this. The fox had made good his prey, and who could say where it was hidden? "'And what will you do, George?' asked Mr. Brown. Then it was that Robinson communicated to them the fact that application had been made to him by the editor of a first-class magazine for a written account of the doings of the firm. "'I think it may be of advantage to commerce in general,' the editor had said with his customary dignity of expression and propriety of demeanor. "'I quite agree with you,' Robinson had replied. "'If only the commercial world of Great Britain can be induced to read the lesson.' The editor seemed to think that the commercial world of Great Britain did read the Cornhill magazine, and an arrangement was quickly made between them. Those who have perused the chapters in question will remember how Robinson yielded when the senior partner pleaded that, as they had been partners so long, they should still be partners to the end and how he had yielded again when it was suggested to him that he should receive some assistance in the literary portion of the work. That assistance has been given, and George Robinson hopes that it may have been of advantage. "'I suppose we shall see each other sometimes, George?' Marianne said to him when she came down to his little room to bid him farewell. "'I hope we shall, Marianne.' I don't suppose we shall ever dance together again at the Hall of Harmony. No, Marianne, never. That phase of life is for me over. Neither with you nor with any other fair girl shall I again wanton away the flying hours. Life is too precious for that, and the work which falls upon a man's shoulders is too exacting. The Hall of Harmony is for children, Marianne for grown children, perhaps, but still for children. You used to like it, George. I did, and could again. So could I again stop with longing mouth at the window of that pastry-cook, whose tarts in early life attracted all my desires. I could again be a boy in everything, did I not recognize the stern necessity which calls me to be a man. I could dance with you still, whirling swiftly round the room to the sweet sound of the music, stretching the hours of delight out to the very dawn, were it not for Adam's doom. In the sweat of my brow must I eat my bread. There is a time for all things, Marianne, but with me the time for such pastimes as those is gone. You'll keep company with some other young woman before long, George, and then you'll be less gloomy. Never. That phase of life is also over. Why should I? To what purpose? To be married, of course. Yes, and become a woman's slave like poor Poppins. 
or else have my heart torn again with racking jealousy, as it was with you. No, Marianne, let those plotting creatures link themselves with women whose bodies require comforting, but whose minds never soar. The world must be populated, and therefore let the briskets marry. I suppose you've heard of him, George? Not a word. La, now, I declare you've no curiosity to inquire about anyone. If I was dead and buried tomorrow, I believe you'd never ask a word about me. I would go to your grave, Marianne, and sit there in silence. Would you now? I hope you won't all the same. But about Brisket, you remember when that row was, and you were so nigh choking him? Do I remember? Ay, Marianne, when shall I forget it? It was the last hour of my madness. I never admired you so much as I did then, George. But never mind. That's all done and over now, isn't it? All done and over, said Robinson, mournfully repeating her words. Of course it is. But about Brisket, immediately after that, the very next day, he went out to Gogham, where he was always going, you know, with that cart of his, to buy sheep. Sheep, indeed. And wasn't it for sheep? No, George, Brisket was the sheep, and there was there a little she-wolf that has got him at last into her claws. Brisket is married, George. What? Another Poppins? Ha, ha, ha! We shall not want for children. He has seen his way at last. She was a drover's daughter, and now he's married her and brought her home. A drover's daughter? Well, he says a grazier's, but it's all the same. He never would have done for me, George, never. And I'll tell you more, I don't think I ever saw the man as would. I should have taken either of you, I was so knocked about among em. But I should have made you miserable, whichever it was. It's a consolation to me when I think of that. And it was a consolation also to him. He had loved her had loved her very dearly. He had been almost mad for love of her, but yet he had always known that had he won her, she would have made him miserable. There was consolation in that when he thought of his loss. Then at last he wished her good-bye. And now farewell, Marianne. Be gentle with that old man. George, she said, as long as he wants me, I'll stick to him. He's never been a good father to me, but if he wants me, I'll stick to him. As to being gentle, it's not in me. I wasn't brought up gentle, and you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Those were the last words she spoke to him, and they had at any rate the merit of truth. And then, before he walked out for the last time from the portals of Magenta House, he bade adieu to his old partner, Mr. Brown. God bless you, George, said the old man. God bless you. Mr. Brown, said he, I cannot part from you without acknowledging that the loss of all your money sits very heavy on my heart. Never think of it, George. But I shall think of it. You are an old man, Mr. Brown, and the money was enough for you, or if you did go into trade again, the old way would have suited you best. 
Well, George, now you mention it, I think it would. It was the same mistake, Mr. Brown, that we have so often heard of, putting old wine into a new bottle. The bottle is broken and the wine is spilt. For myself, I've learned a lesson, and I am a wiser man. But I'm sorry for you, Mr. Brown. I shall never say a word to blame you, George. As to my principles, that system of commerce which I have advocated, as to that, I am still without a doubt. I am certain of the correctness of my views. Look at Barleywig and his colossal fortune, and forty thousand pounds a year spent in advertising. But then you should have your forty thousand pounds a year. By no means. But the subject is a long one, Mr. Brown, and cannot now be discussed with advantage. This, however, I do feel, that I should not have embarked your little all in such an enterprise. It was enough for you, but to me, with my views, it was nothing, less than nothing. I will begin again with unimpeded wings, and you shall hear of my success. But for your sake, Mr. Brown, I regret what is past. Then he pressed the old man's hand and went forth from Magenta House. From that day to this present one, he has never again entered the door. And so Brisket is married. Brisket is right. Brisket is a happy man, he said to himself as he walked slowly down the passage by St. Botoff's Church. Brisket is certainly right. I will go and see Brisket. So he did, and continuing his way along the back of the bank in the narrow street which used to be called Lad Lane, I wish they would not alter the names of the streets. Was it not enough that the swan with two necks should be pulled down, foreshadowing perhaps in its ruin the fate of another bird with two necks from which this one took its emblematic character? and so making his way out into Aldersgate Street. He had never before visited the lairs of Brisket, for Brisket had been his enemy. But Brisket was his enemy no longer, and he walked into the shop with a light foot and a pleasant smile. There, standing at some little distance behind the block, looking with large wondering eyes at the carcasses of the sheep which hung around her, stood a wee little woman very pretty, with red cheeks and red lips and short, thick, clustering curls. This was the daughter of the grazier from Gogham. The shopman will be back in a minute, said she. I ought to be able to do it myself, but I'm rather astray about the things yet a while. Then George Robinson told her who he was. She knew his name well, and gave him her little plump hand in token of greeting. Laws a mercy, are you George Robinson? I've heard such a deal about you. He's inside, just tidying himself a bit for dinner. Who do you think there is here, Bill? And she opened the door leading to the back premises. Here's George Robinson that you're always so full of. Then he followed her out into a little yard where he found Brisket in the neighborhood of a pump, smelling strongly of yellow soap, with his sleeves tucked up, and hard at work with a rough towel. "'Robinson, my boy,' cried he, "'I'm glad to see you, and so is Mrs. B., ain't you, Emily?' 
whereupon Emily said that she was delighted to see Mr. Robinson. "'And you're just in time for a tidy bit of roast veal, as you won't see again in a hurry. Fed down at Gogham by Emily's mother. I killed it myself with my own hands, didn't I, Emily?' Robinson stopped and partook of the viands which were so strongly recommended to him. And then, after dinner, he and Brisket and the bride became very intimate and confidential over a glass of hot brandy and water. "'I don't do this kind of thing only when I've got a friend,' said Brisket, tapping the tumbler with his spoon. "'But I really am glad to see you. I've took a fancy to you now, ever since you went so nigh throttling me.' "'By Jove! Though I began to think it was all up with me. Only for Sarah Jane.' "'But he didn't,' said Emily, looking first at her great husband, and then at Robinson's slender proportions. "'Didn't he, though? But he just did. And what do you think, Emily? He wanted me once to sit with him on a barrel of gunpowder.' "'A barrel of gunpowder?' "'And smoke our pipes there.' quite comfortable, and then he wanted me to go and fling ourselves into the river. That was uncommon civil, wasn't it? And then he well-nigh choked me. It was all about that young woman, said Emily, with a toss of her head, and from all I can hear tell, she wasn't worth fighting for. As for you, Bill, I wonder at you, so I do. I thought I saw my way, said Brisket. It's well for you that you've got somebody near you that will see better now. And as for you, Mr. Robinson, I hope you won't be long in the dumps neither. Whereupon he explained to her that he was by no means in the dumps. He had failed in trade, no doubt, but he was now engaged upon a literary work as to which considerable expectation had been raised and he fully hoped to provide for his humble wants in this way till he should be able to settle himself again to some new commercial enterprise. "'It isn't that as she means,' said Brisket. "'She means about taking a wife. That's all the woman ever thinks of.' "'What I was saying is that as you and Bill were both after her, and as you are both broke with her, and seeing that Bill's provided himself like—' "'And a charming provision he has made,' said Robinson. "'I did see my way,' said Brisket, with much self-content. "'Still, you ought to look elsewhere, as well as he,' continued Emily. "'According to all accounts, you've neither of you lost so very much in not getting Marianne Brown.' "'Marianne Brown is a handsome young woman,' said Robinson. "'Why, she's as red as red,' said Mrs. Brisket. Quite carroty, they tell me. And as for handsome, Mr. Robinson, handsome is as handsome does, that's what I say. If I had two sweethearts going about talking of gunpowder and throwing themselves into rivers along of me, I'd, I'd, I'd never forgive myself. So, Mr. Robinson, I hope you'll suit yourself soon. Bill, don't you take any more of that brandy. Don't now, when I tell you not. Then Robinson rose and took his leave, promising to make future visits to Aldersgate Street. And as Brisket squeezed his hand at parting, all the circumstances of that marriage were explained in a very few words. 
She had three hundred down, you know, really down. So I said done and done when I found the money wasn't there with Marianne. And I think that I've seen my way. Robinson congratulated him and assured him that he thought that he had seen it very clearly. End of chapter 23 Recording by Arnold Banner, Thurmond, North Carolina